So, 1 Corinthians, we're continuing um, with our prodigal church series, and, and, and with this, Paul's letter to the church uh, in Corinth, um, and he's continuing, and today we get to the awfully uncomfortable topic of sexual immorality um, and liberty, and how the two of them seem to be at odds, but Paul is going to explain to us and show us how that works. Now, whenever we talk about sexual immorality in the church— Right? I, I mean, just to be clear, we're going to talk about sex. Now, at Blessed Hope, we've never shied away from talking about sex. It's not like it's ever like the most fun thing that we do either. Because, hey bud. Yeah, you got one. Yeah, he's got his bulletin. If you've got your bulletin, you can take some notes in there. It's the way to do it. Um, but, but, but here's how we roll. <laughs> right? When we talk about sexual immorality, all we can do is share what the Word of God says. And so whenever we come to this topic, I always want us to be clear um, that I'm not throwing rocks at you. Um, I'm not throwing stones at you any more than pastors I've had in the past have been throwing stones at me because they say things that fly in the face of the way I live my life. I'm not doing that to you. I'm just sharing what the Word of God says, clearly, what the Word of God means, clearly, and I'm just trusting that the Holy Spirit will do in your heart whatever it is that the Holy Spirit needs to do in your heart, right? Um, And my encouragement to you is when the Holy Spirit prompts you and the Holy Spirit does something, um, that you should not ignore it. You would do well... um, when you feel conviction that comes from God to to figure out what it is that you need to do to step into holiness, right? But all we're going to do is is share what the Word of God says. And what the Word of God has said about sex is that it is good, it is intentional, it is designed to be enjoyed um, in a marriage relationship. Here we go back to Genesis, in theory, we go back to Genesis— Philip will help us go back to Genesis. There it is. Um, and and here's, what, here's what happens. In Genesis, you remember, God creates Adam, um, and he says, it's not good for Adam to be alone. And then in, in this, um, this demonstration of what Adam's need is, he creates and he, he brings all of the other pairs of animals in front of Adam for him to name, right? And, and he's naming all of the animals. And, and when he's named them all, his, his heart sinks a little bit, right? Because they all have an other, a male and a female, a partner. And Adam sees in all of them that, you know what? There are some good parts of creation there, but there is no person, there is no creation that is suitable to be his partner, right? And God shows him that. And then God causes him to fall into a deep sleep, right? This isn't mythology, Right? This is theology. This is, this is truth. God causes him to fall into a sleep, and, and God takes from him the rib, and he forms the woman. Similarly to, to how he formed um, Adam out of the dust, he forms the woman from the man, and, and he, he forms her, and he breathes life into her, and she is now there. And, and then God brings her to Adam, and he says, at last. Right? I saw all of the pairs. No helper was just right for me, but at last, this one is bone for my bone. This one is flesh for my flesh. 
And she will be called woman because she is taken from man. And this explains, get this now, this explains why a man will leave his father and mother um, and will be joined to his wife. The two are united into one. And the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. And so we read in scripture that, that God went out of his way to show Adam that his need, man's need, was someone like him, the woman. And that together, the two of them would leave their family and the two would be united in one flesh, right? The, the two would be combined and that that was God's design. And they were naked and they felt no shame because it was right. It was the way that God planned it. It was the way that God designed it. They are sexual beings and they're meant to express that in relationship with one another, only in relationship with one another. That's why there's no shame. This is God's design. But what do we read, right? We read that even though it's God's design, Philip, I still can't. That's going to get annoying for you. Tell you what, you guys stop listening for a second. I'm going to pretend and then they won't know that it's really me not doing it. Okay, you can listen now. Um, but this is it, right? God brings man and woman together in marriage and that's his design for sex, right? One man, one woman, one covenant commitment, one lifetime enjoying this intimacy as one flesh, naked and unashamed. Amen. That's his design. Now listen, 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 listen. The church has drawn a lot of lines that are arbitrary. And whenever the church draws arbitrary lines, right, this is what, um, this is what good church music should sound like. That's an arbitrary line, right? Is it, is it monks chanting? Is it organs playing? Is it drums, guitar? It's arbitrary, right? Um, the church has drawn arbitrary lines at times over, this is what an order of service should look like. This is the way it should go when we start. These are the elements we should have, and this is how we should close, right? Um, over what we should wear when we show up on a Sunday morning. Should it be casual? Should it be formal? Should it be business casual? Whatever. Like we, we've, we've drawn arbitrary lines. Every time we draw an arbitrary line in worship, we weaken the real lines that exist, right? It's one of the reasons why rules-based religion can't work so well, because when we base our religion around rules, we, we lose the essence of God's truth, and what God has very clearly said about sex, this is why we don't draw arbitrary lines, because there are real lines that we have to deal with. And the real lines that we have to deal with here is that God designed sex to be good. He designed it for our benefit, our edification. He designed it to be a, a, a binding element to marriage between one man, one woman, very clearly taken from the man, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, one covenant commitment together, not temporary, naked and unashamed. Because sex inside of marriage isn't something that we're ashamed of. Sex that's healthy and that glorifies God. I, I know it's weird, but sex in a marriage glorifies God. It's his intention. It's nothing to be ashamed of. But then sin. Sin comes 
And sin jacks it all up. Sin comes, and Adam and Eve engage in sin. They rebel against God, and what's one of the first things that happens? They're ashamed at their nakedness, right? Because something about this has all of a sudden been thrown out of whack. And then we read the rest of Genesis, and what do we read? This good and perfect gift from God that was meant to be healthy and binding and wonderful, has become marred and abused. And what do we read throughout the rest of Genesis and then through the rest of Scripture and then see throughout the lens of history? Sexual dysfunction. I mean, in in, in just the first book of the Bible, we read about things like rape, incest, polygamy, lust, murder born out of lust, Hatred born out of envious lust. Homosexuality, like all of these things, bestiality, all of these things we see stemming from this moment where sin enters the world. But God has a design for sex. And it's good, right? But, but then something has gotten out of whack. And this is, this is why this is really important for us to understand. Because as Paul addresses the church in Corinth, he's going to have to reorient their hearts back to an appropriate sexual ethic, a biblical sexual ethic. Because if you think we live in a culture that is sexually bonkers, then you don't necessarily, well, we do. If you think that, you're right. Um, I was going to say something more dramatic, but then it was going to make it sound like we don't. Yes, we do. Right? But Corinth was worse. Right? Corinth was terrible at this. Corinth was terrible at this because not only was there sexual sin, um, but the sexual sin was so normalized that they actually thought they were worshiping God when they engaged in it. When they were acting immoral, they were led to believe that they were worshiping. There's a problem. And you know what? The normalization of sexual Sin is not something that's unique to their culture. It's happened all throughout time because Satan knows what he's doing. And he's crafty. And he knows not just how to attack your heart. And make no doubt about it that that Satan is real. The enemy is real. And he does want to attack your heart. But on top of that, Satan knows how to attack a culture. And part of the way that Satan attacks a culture, listen to me now is by normalizing something that God says no to. That's what's happened to us. Right? We live in a culture that has normalized sexual sin. Started in the 60s, 70s. The sexual revolution. I think some of us have talked about this before, but, um, but, but it, was, it was born out of, of that time um, that, that you first had scientific... If you're listening online and you can't see, I'm using air quotes... Scientific research, right, Um, from Alfred Kinsey. And the whole goal of his research, which has been debunked, but it it was treated as fact at the time, but the whole goal of his research was to normalize sexual deviancy because the thought process was if more people are acting in a deviant way, then it's not really deviant. It's normal. 
And so we should normalize it. We should stop the stigma. We should stop teaching that it's wrong and start teaching that it's okay because most people are doing it anyway. So he published that report and actually opened the Kinsey Institute in 1969. One of the Kinsey Institute's first projects under Dr. Mary Cauldron, Cauldron, sorry, um, was to write public sex education curriculum. In her bid and proposal to write this curriculum, these are direct quotes from her, except where I have inserted. Here's what she says. A new stage of evolution is breaking across the horizon, and the task of educators is to prepare children to step into the new world. To do this, they must pry children away from old views and values. This is where I've inserted a thought. See parents and and churches. They must pry children away from old views and values, especially, here's what she says now, you see her heart, especially from biblical and other traditional forms of sexual morality because religious laws and rules about sex were made on the basis of ignorance. She's not done. Here's what she says then with her new curriculum that is going to be taught in public schools. And by the way, it has been. Anybody from, from, from that early, mid-70s on in public schools has had these kinds of sexual education in the schools. And it continues today. Here's what she says. We're going to prepare children to be more sexual. To do that, we must separate them from their church and family, and we must introduce sex education into the public school system. That's a tragic social experiment. And if I can be so bold. Now, I want to be careful. I'm not calling Dr. Mary Caldron names, but I am saying that this is satanic. It's satanic, right? Because what it is, is it's Satan trying to manipulate a culture to normalize something God has said no to. That's, that's what's happening with sex. It was happening with the church in Corinth, and it's happening to the church today, right? When Satan is trying to manipulate the culture. And let's be honest, it's been successful. Because even in the church, we have come to readily accept sexual immorality as typical, Even when we see it and know that it's immoral, we just kind of let it happen. And there are many churches today that will take sexual immorality and they'll actually teach it as good in ways that honor God. Why? Because it's normal, so it must be something good. And this is a problem. And so this is what Paul's addressing with the church in Corinth, and it's what we have to deal with as we really dig into this letter, right? All right, let's jump in. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. Um, we're going to look at it piecemeal on the screen, but I just want to read it to you so we, we know where we're going. Bear with me. Open up your Bibles if you've got them. If you're using your journal, it's page 22, but if you've got any other Bible, it's in 1 Corinthians. So, here we go. All things are lawful for me. That's going to be confusing. We'll deal with it. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. 
All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you know, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Okay. So we're going we're gonna to jump in here and, and, and see all that this means. Um, and he starts with this All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Now, I want to be clear here because he's talking about sexual immorality. And if we first read this, we would say, okay, so Paul's saying that it's cool if I'm sexually immoral, right? All things are lawful for me, so I can just go ahead and be as sexually immoral as I want as long as I know it's probably not very helpful for me. And and that would be a wrong way to process this. That would be a wrong way to view what Paul's saying. Um, Paul is huge on freedom. But when Paul speaks about freedom, what Paul is speaking about is freedom from religious law. Remember, Paul was a devout Jew. And Paul thought the way to be right with God was through following rules, right? If you um, had yourself circumcised in the right way, if you worshiped God at the temple at the right times and in the right way, if you followed the right protocol and program, if you did all of the religious activities, then you would be okay with God. And Paul says, no, no, none of that's right. The way you get right with God is confessing your sin to Jesus Christ and, and asking him for forgiveness and, and allowing him to invade your life, right? And, and living in a way that honors him, right? It has nothing to do with showing up at the right time in the right place and being in the right, um, the right mode and do, giving the right things and all of that. He says, that's not what it's about. You have freedom. He says, so all things uh, um, are lawful for me. Like I'm not under the law anymore, But that doesn't mean I can just do whatever I want, right? Because not everything is helpful. And and so I want to just break this down for you. Like, if you are a Christian, I feel like we've said this most weeks in this series, if you have walked through the door of salvation, right, you have truly come to repent and trust Jesus Christ, you are forgiven of your sins. And those are your past sins. But listen, now that's also your future sin. When I go home today, I mean, I'm not, listen, I'm not planning to go home and sin. I want to be clear. But when I go home today and sin because I suck and I lose my temper or I I say something I I shouldn't or somebody cuts me off in in Vinton because there's so much traffic here um, that I, that I just, whatever it is, right? I'm forgiven, That's done and over with. I sinned, and and yet, you know what? I I came to the cross, and I was forgiven for all of my sin that I've ever done in the past. But you know what? I'm also forgiven for these mistakes that I'll make in the future. 
That is the complete and total forgiveness of God. So in a sense, Paul's saying, like, yeah, yeah, if you sin, right, you're okay. But it's not good for you. Yes, you can sin. And yes, you can know that God's forgiving me in my sin. But it's still not good for you. It's not helpful. It's not, the word there is profitable. Right? And Paul addresses this. I'm sure he taught the church in Corinth all about this when he was with them for a year and a half. And he wrote it in other letters. Look what he said to the church in Galatia. He says, for you've been called to live in freedom, right? Because you are free in Christ. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Don't think it's okay to go ahead and keep sinning and saying, oh, but I'm free in Christ, so it's all good. He's forgiven me of my sin, so as I engage in this sin, I can do it knowing I'm going to be fine. He says, don't use your freedom to engage in sinful behavior. Tells the church in Rome, well then, should, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace, right? Do we just keep sinning and saying, thanks for your grace, God? Right? Uh, I, I know that I shouldn't be having sex with this person, but you're going to forgive me anyway, so thank you. Paul says, of course not. That's not okay. Right? So, so we, we, we have to understand, when Paul starts this off, he's like, yeah, everything's lawful. Sure. Right? You're forgiven. Right? You're, you're not going to hell because you fall down and make a mistake. But don't ever think that just because you're forgiven, you can go ahead and keep on wantingly sinning. Remember, we talked about the difference between living in rebellion and living in repentance. One needs discipleship. If you're living in repentance, you screw up, you confess it, we move on, we grow. That needs discipleship. When you're living in rebellion, that needs discipline. He keeps going. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful, right? And sexual sin is never to your advantage. It might feel like it is for a moment. I mean, let's be honest. There's an allure. There's a draw to sin, especially sexual sin. But it's not to your advantage. It's not helpful. It will ruin. And then he says this, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Right? It's like, Paul says, you know, one, even though I might be forgiven for engaging in this sin, it's not to my advantage. It will hurt me. It will hurt my witness. It will hurt people around me. And on top of that, while I might be forgiven for this sin, I refuse to be owned by it. I refuse to be dominated by it. I refuse to be controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit. And this is the deal here. Listen, you know this. There is no sin quite so attractive as sexual sin. It draws. That's why our kids are looking at porn. You know they are. But, I mean, you don't know that. You, you, you know it's happening. I'm not talking, listen, your kids, I, you know that kids in general are doing this. We've seen the research. We know the numbers. Why? Because we are, as a culture, normalizing things that are deviant. That's Satan's grand plan. It was for them. It is for us. That's why you need filters on computers and phones and these things. You need to have conversations about Because this stuff matters. It happens. And yes, it happens in Christian families. 
So we've got to be really careful here. Paul says all things are lawful, but we can't be dominated by anything other than God. If we're bond servants to Christ, we can't be servants to something else. This is total. And sexual sin has a draw. Here's the thing, right? It starts with a dabble. You dip a toe in the water. You know, you walk a little bit down the path, not thinking that you'll get all the way there. But every time, it grabs hold, and it draws, and it pulls. And before you know it, you're stuck. I mean, here, here's, here's the reality. When we willingly associate with sin, we first grow to tolerate it. Then we begin to practice it. And it starts a little bit at a time. Now, I know some of you at this point want me to talk about this um, Equality Act amendment that's on the table um, in our nation. And I would be glad to talk to you about that. Not now. Right? I'd rather focus on what the Word of God has to say. Okay? But I, I will be glad to talk to you about that. And I'll just say this, right? As soon as we as a culture say things are normal that are not normal, that say things are legitimate, that God has clearly said are illegitimate, we are in a difficult position. Now, God's going to win. His way will, will ring forth and it will be true, right? Um, our ability to freely worship might be in jeopardy, but we will continue to worship, right? But these are things we have to be aware of because when we willingly associate with sin, right, well, we tolerate it, and then eventually we start to practice it. We've seen that happen to denominations, Christian denominations throughout the last, sorry, man, just, it, it, it's all messing up up here, right? Like the, the clicker, the beard, and the microphone. Anyway, here, here's the thing, right? We've seen whole denominations that have done this. And their intention was always pure. Right? Their intention was always pure. Their intention always started with, with um, tolerating. Right? Like, it's okay. Right? We love you. You love us. You don't have to agree with us. We'll just all be together and it'll be fine. And then pretty soon we start to, um, we start to be overrun with this. And the next thing you know, we are participating and saying it's good. It's right. Let's be a part of it. It doesn't work that way, but, but we've seen it happen all throughout history. And Paul is very clearly saying, look, look, you can't be controlled by anything. He's saying, yes, everything is lawful, but not everything is to your advantage. It's not good for you. Everything is lawful, but you can't be controlled by things other than God. Yes, he forgives sin, right? The fancy way to say, uh, all, all of that is the fancy way to say this in verse 12. Yes, God forgives sin, no, that does not mean you should keep sinning. And when it comes to sex, it's dangerous. Anybody following Ravi Zachariah and any of that nonsense? Breaks my heart. But this is a slippery slope. And none of us are exempt. This is something we have to talk about. We have to understand what it is that God calls us to. And he calls us to holiness. And he calls us to sexual morality. It's his call for the church in Corinth. That's why he's writing this section of the letter. It's his call to us today. That's something that we can understand from it. 
not just individually, yes, individually, but also, as he's going to show us in these next um, seven verses, corporately. Because this doesn't just impact us as individuals. This impacts the body. Sexual sin, and this is Paul's primary concern. If he was talking about an individual, he would be talking about discipline for that individual, like he did in 1 Corinthians 5, about the man who was having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. He's talking there about discipline. Here, though, he's talking about the the holiness of the whole body. We keep going. 13 and 14, he he says this, food is meant for the stomach and, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy one and the other. The body is not meant, though, for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is meant for the body. Right? And God raised the Lord and will also raise up by his power. And so there's a couple things that we have to wrestle with here. First of all, um, uh, sometimes we wonder, like, man, why do they write this way? Like, why not just say what they mean? Well, they did. They just meant it a long time ago where this was normal. So what does it mean? Food is meant for the stomach and and the stomach is for food. And uh, well, ultimately what Paul's talking about here is a, um, a Greek philosophy. And the Greek philosophy was this. Everything physical is evil. Everything spiritual is holy. And when you die, right, no matter what you do in this life, none of it matters. You do whatever you want in this life and none of it matters. Because everything that is the result of your physical will just die and go away. And and it doesn't matter because it's all evil anyway. Even if you do good, it's evil. Physical is evil. Spiritual is holy and good and right. So whatever, physical doesn't matter. And when you die, all that's going to be left is this spiritual essence, this goodness. No matter what you did in this life, that's all that will be left. It's a a Greek philosophy that runs rampant at this time. And so basically what it was teaching is that biological relationships are just what they are. And sex, simply biological. This is like saying, hey, you know what? Food is for the stomach. We have stomachs because we're intended to have food. They are clearly built for one another. We cannot argue that. Right? You have a stomach. That's what food is for. Well, they say, we also have the ability to have sex. That's what sex is for. It's simply a biological need. Right? So, so the, the, the church would argue you know what? Food is for the stomach. The stomach is for food. Our bodies are meant for sex. Sex is meant for our bodies. It's no different. It's the same thing. It's purely physical. One day they will pass away and what's left will be spiritual. And Paul says, yeah, it's true about the food in the stomach, right? They are meant for each other. But then he says, you know, God will destroy them both, right? Like they'll be remade new. Um, but the body is not meant for sexual morality. Your, your, your reasoning falls short. It stops. The body's not meant for that. Instead, the body is actually meant for the Lord. Right? Don't be controlled by this because the Lord is the ultimate goal of this. Your body wasn't designed to have... Yes, your bodies were designed to have sex within the context of marriage. But your body was not solely designed for this. Your body is designed to have this communion with God. That is the sole primary purpose, right? That is why God created you, was to be in communion with him. Everything else is details. You were created to be in communion with God. That's why you exist. The body's not meant for immorality. It's meant for the Lord, 
right? And the Lord for the body. And it's not just going to go away. It's not just going to die. It's not just going to disappear. It's not going to be destroyed. He says, God raised the Lord and he'll raise us up. Like our bodies aren't going to disappear, right? Our bodies are meant for the Lord. The Lord is meant for our body. And it's not just going to be destroyed and go away with only our spirit left, but our body is going to be resurrected and raised by the power of God. When we get to 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to spend like three or four weeks talking about the resurrection, right? But, but Paul's laying some groundwork here saying, don't, don't you know, like your body's not disappearing. Your body is going to be resurrected. It belongs to the Lord. The Lord belongs to it. Like this is connected. And so he says, so, so do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take a member of Christ and make them a member of a prostitute? And of course, we know the answer to that. This is the natural evolution of Paul's argument. He's like, you know what? No, don't do that. Right? If you are a member of Christ, if, if the body is for the Lord's and the Lord's is for the body, then don't take your body and join it in sexual immorality with somebody else. That's not okay. Never do that. Right? Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it's written, the two will become one flesh. Now, now here's the thing. C.S. Lewis wrote it this way in the screw tape letters. Um, that every sexual union creates an enduring bond that will either be enjoyed or endured throughout eternity. That's the way he says it. Um, and if you've never read the screw tape letters, read them. This is good. It's a, a fictional account of demons trying to talk to each other and encourage them in how to get people to sin. Right? And, and, and the chief demon is talking to his under demon, Wormwood, and he says that you want to get this guy. He's a new Christian, but you want to get him to continue to engage in sexual immorality. Why? Because every time he engages in, in, in sexual immorality, what he does is he is binding himself to another person, right? And that binding is not going to go away. And it is going to be either enjoyed or endured all throughout eternity. Now, I'm not sure I understand how all of that works, but, but I get what Paul's saying here. He's like, look, you are made for two people to become one flesh. And so when you become one flesh in an immoral way, you are bringing that into the body. Don't do that. Yeah, maybe you'll be forgiven about it, but, but you're still harming the body in the end. Right? But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Right? So get this. We are one with the Lord. We don't want to take into this oneness with the Lord and, and pull this other immorality in with him. That's not how we're created. That's not what we're for. And he finishes this way. Flee from sexual immorality. So when all of this is said and done, Paul says, look, it's not good for you. Yeah, maybe you'll be forgiven, but it doesn't mean you get to keep doing it. Right? And, and you're not just made for sex. It's not just a normal thing. Well, everybody's doing it. It's normal. I should just go do it. No, 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 no. You're made for relationship with God first and foremost. And that relationship will endure all throughout eternity. Because just the way he raised Christ from the dead, he will raise you. Right? So do not join yourself to immorality. Instead, flee from it. And I always want to pause here with flee from sexual immorality because... 
Uh, when we talk about sexual immorality, and I have a lot of conversations with a lot of different people about these things, what they always tell me is that they'll figure out a way to be close to sexual immorality. They'll hang out with it, but they won't engage in it. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll live with my boyfriend, but we won't have sex. Right? I mean, like, he'll live in the basement. I'll take the one bedroom. Because that's what Paul says. He's like, invite sexual immorality to live with you. Just don't engage in it. Right? Or, or get as close to it as you possibly can, thinking that you just will toe the line and you'll call it quits right before it goes too far. Right? Like, like yeah, enjoy those long lingers at the water cooler with, with your work wife. Right? Don't do that. That's bad. Um, but, but, right, you know, don't go out for drinks after dinner because something bad happens there. Like, you, can, you know, listen, we do this all the time. We, we treat sexual immorality in the church like it's a challenge. It's so dumb. Ravi Zachariah probably treated it like a challenge. I mean, I don't know that dude's heart, but, but when you read some of these things, it's like, how close to the line can I get? And how many times, I don't know, how many times did that guy walk right up to a line and then was able to pull back and technically be okay before he got right up to the line and he just fell right over because Satan's good at what he does. But Paul says flee from it because every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. And that's a weird thing to figure out what exactly Paul means there. And I, I think what he's saying is, is that there, not, not that sexual sin is worse than every other sin. But it does something to your soul in a way that other sin doesn't. And there are other sins that are in your body, right? We know that, right? You do alcohol, drugs, like addiction. Like these things impact your body, right? But, but, but there's something with your soul, right? What are we designed for? We're designed for two either to be in perfect communion with God, right? Or for two to become one flesh. Like, it, it, it's spiritual, I know, but it's real that two come together to make one, right? And so every time you engage in sexual immorality, it, it does something to your soul. And it's problematic. Paul says, flee from it. Don't you know that it's for your own good. And, and not only that, we know sexual sin has ramifications that trump every other sin. Rip families apart. Reputations. They ruin legacies. And unfortunately, sometimes sexual immorality can ruin somebody's faith. So Paul says, be careful. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Right? When you become a Christian... You are born again. The power of the Holy Spirit now lives in you. Um, Paul tells us in another letter that the Holy Spirit is actually a down payment on your future glorification. So the Holy Spirit is in you. Now, some people have a whole lot more of the Holy Spirit than others. And we'll talk about that as we get into 1 Corinthians. There are some people that are powerful in the Holy Spirit and some people that, that don't even really understand why he's there. Like I said, we'll get there as we unpack this letter, but, but the Holy Spirit lives in every single one of us. Because we are now, as believers, we are God's temple. We're bought with a price. The blood of Christ. 
and the Holy Spirit lives in you, so glorify God in your body. Some of you are like, oh, I, I, I hear this all the time. Um, somebody will say something they shouldn't say, or, um, yep, or they'll do something they shouldn't do, and, and, and the common thing is, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm at church. And sometimes that's weird, right? I, I mean, let, let's just go ahead. If you were going to be sexually immoral here in the sanctuary, that would be gross. But you're misunderstanding you're misunderstanding what Paul's trying to communicate if you think that you can go home and be sexually immoral and it's not just as gross. Why? Because you yourself are the Holy Spirit's temple where God resides. It's not like God is here and not in your car. God is in you. So when you engage in these things, you are dragging God in it with you. You know, most of us that, that sin, we, we, we certainly don't like people to know it. We want it to be secret. It's never secret from God. The Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you and is a participant in everything you do. And you are dragging at times when we are especially sexually immoral, we're dragging the Holy Spirit into this. And he says, so you cannot, you're not your own. You were bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ, his death and sacrifice on the cross paid for you. So glorify God. It's what we do at the church, right? We come here to glorify God. We should go there to glorify God. Now, we're like way out of time. So go to the last slide. Or, yep, yeah, let's just pretend it's not there. <laughs> In my mind, it was a really good one. There it is. Um, when it comes to sexual morality, here's what we do. We like to um, decide that we're the exception. I've been there, man. I've done that. We like to decide that we're the exception. And so, like, the lawyer that lives in your head might be working overdrive to explain why your sexual sin isn't really what God's talking about here. That's not really what God's talking about. Right? Um, so, so here's the deal. Shut that down. Shut that down. God's clear in his word. We know what sex is for. We know what it's not. We know what's moral. And regardless of what the culture tells us, we know what's immoral. We are not our own. We were bought at a price. So stop trying, how to, stop, stop trying to prove how you're the exception. And here's what I'm going to ask. And this won't matter for, for many of you, but it might for some. And it might be a little embarrassing. And so the challenge is on you um, to decide whether or not you're ready for some deliverance and some freedom. Because I'm going to invite, as we close in prayer, anybody that's tired of being hounded by sexual morality to come up here and be prayed for. And that can look like a lot of different things, man. You could be stuck looking at porn, stuck visiting strip clubs. It might be something that's not outside of you. It might be something inside of you. You might be stuck lusting in a way that you know God says no to. You might be stuck in a, um, in a string of 
relationships where sex is happening where you know very clearly that's not what God desires. You may be somebody that struggles with same-sex attraction. Even though you know you don't want to go down that road, you struggle with it. You might be somebody um, that is in a long-term committed relationship that sees marriage in your future but is going and, and you're acting like you're married now. All of these things need, they need to be stopped. Paul says flee. Flee from sexual immorality. We are to honor God with our lives. We've been bought and paid for at a price. So here's my encouragement to you. If that's you, as I'm praying, I'm just going to ask you to come up front. Elders, you're around. If there are people that need to be prayed for, come on up. Let's do this. We would love to lay hands on you. It's not creepy or weird. We're just going to touch you. Should find another way to say that when we're talking about sex. <laughs> we're going to touch your shoulder. And we're just going to pray for you. We're going to help you step into freedom. We're going to help you step into, um, into accountability. And, and we're going to walk through this with you. Because here's the, the deal. There's a difference between rebellion and repentance. I keep going back to where my heart is broken with Ravi Zachariah. And if you don't know that, whatever, you can go find out, you can whatever, but most of us do because we live in an age with 24-hour news and Facebook and Instagram and social media and whatever else. But I would imagine that this guy heard many, gave many messages about the need for deliverance and accountability and to make the decision to repent from sinfulness. Gave many of those messages but refused to ever be a part of him. I don't know what's in your heart, but I want to offer it to you. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. God, I, I know we've lingered here this morning, but this topic is too important for us because it, sexual immorality has invaded our culture and it has um, invaded the church in many ways. And so God, I just pray that, that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would help people break free. That if there is sin to be confessed and repented of, that we would do that collectively as a body. If there is um, accountability to be had to help move forward, that that would happen as a body. Father, your call to the church in Corinth was that they live lives of holiness because collectively they are the body of Christ. And your call to us at Blessed Hope Community Church is to live lives of holiness because collectively here we are the body of Christ. We've been bought and paid for. And God, you've asked us for better. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. Amen.